This is your fave, Janet Mock, and I'm back with a super extra special, super, super amazing treat. Yep, you heard me. A bonus episode of Never Before to tide you over until we return with a new batch of conversations with the most amazing cultural figures. And this one is super close to my heart. I'm letting you eavesdrop on a little chat between me and two of my most fashionable friends, Christian Siriano and Nicolette Mason. Christian Siriano is a designer who has dressed all of your faves. Michelle Obama, Rihanna, Nicki Minaj, J-Lo, Leslie Jones, Solange, and yours truly. He burst into the hearts of fashion lovers everywhere when he won the fourth season of Project Runway. He's the Kelly Clarkson of fashion, emerging from reality TV to construct an influential empire, which includes ready-to-wear, couture, fragrances, bedding, and even pay less shoes. Nicolette Mason is a brand strategist and creative consultant, and now a designer of her own line, Prem, which launched in July for sizes 12 to 30. Talk about inclusive. She was also contributing editor for Marie Claire, where she helmed the groundbreaking column Big Girl in a Skinny World. The magazine also brought us together IRL. How we adorn our bodies has always been political. Fashion is a $1.2 trillion global industry with $250 billion spent annually in the United States alone. The industry is securing all of the coin, but at what cost? Christian and Nicolette are expanding our culture's definition of beauty doing the work every single day to ensure that regardless of class, race, gender identity, body shape or size, that we all have the ability to see ourselves reflected on the runway and in the world. So today we discuss the intricacies and nuances of where bodies and business intersect. We talk about the currency of celebrity and what it would take to revolutionize capital F fashion. And yes, we also talk about that not so fierce catchphrase. You guys, you're on my podcast. Yay! Nicolette Mason and Christian Siriano are here, my very, very dear friend, but I'm going to pretend I don't know them for today. Love it. So you two met when, Nicolette, you were writing at Vogue Italia. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to profile Christian? Well, I was just so fascinated by the fact that already at that time, this was like almost eight years ago, Christian really made a point of dressing people of all sizes and all body types and he was dressing a lot of women of different races and ethnicities. Was there a particular woman that stuck out to you? Christina Hendricks. The ruffle dress? I don't remember specifically which dress it was but I remember her talking about how hard it was to get anybody to dress her for red carpet or for events and um, that Christian had consistently shown up for her. And I was just really fascinated by that and um, obviously was like a fan of the work that he was doing anyways. And so I reached out to him. I just sent a cold email. I was like, hey, I'd really love to do a little profile on you for Vogatalia. And we met at his studio in Midtown, which he's expanded same, same building. building but expanded Five. multiple floors it's so scary my favorite place and, in the world to go to yeah it's heaven it's hilarious honestly and we instantly hit it off and became friends and it's just been so amazing to see something that was like such a genuine part of his creative process and his love of fashion and of celebrating women become 
a core part of his brand and something that like finally years later, other designers and the industry as a whole are catching up to. They're late. They're late. They're late. They're late. But that's okay. But they're at the party. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicola, I first became aware of your work, obviously through Marie Claire, your column. Mm-hmm. Big oh, girl. it wasn't through me Facebook messaging you like a fangirl? <laughs> no, I knew <laughs> you I before. You. I was aware of you before that, before we even <laughs> oh connected online. Um, oh. Because it was just, there was no other space like it in mainstream yeah. women's fashion magazines. What was it like for you to be invited to the party but Mm -hmm. to stand out so much as like this insider that's still kind of an outsider totally and I think it's something that we definitely have in common is that when you come into the fashion industry from this like quote-unquote outside and you're not given the stamp of approval by the capital F fashion and industry. And who is that, Christian? Uh, Who's the capital F? I don't know. I've seen that said so many times, right? Yeah. We can, you know, obviously I'm not in the fashion world, so yeah. I can say like from the outside I mm-hmm. see Anna Wintour and maybe yeah. some critics sure. at the Times. I, yeah, and... I think there's kind of this like old guard that has been very protective of who yeah. comes in and wanting to maintain a sense of exclusivity in the fashion industry. But why industry. when it's a business? Uh, because a lot of the business is controlled and generated by breeding on a certain level of exclusivity and insecurity. And it's kind of like the way all capitalism functions to a degree where the way we protect this machine and keep people coming back to it is by preying on their insecurities and preying on perceived flaws. It's exactly that piece that if fashion is a part of this capitalistic machine Mm -hmm. and this machine that's about making clothes for people who want to buy clothes, Mm -hmm. wouldn't it not make more sense to make more sizes, to create vision so that the girl that wants to wear sequins and leopard and Uh, all these beautiful things can have access to buying that? They want to think of it that way but unfortunately they just don't like they don't think of it the same way as I think we do every day or maybe it's the other end of it where it's like it's the exclusivity model where it's like we make it so unattainable that you're striving and reaching and wanting this thing that you cannot have absolutely and that like you can't come to the party unless you're invited and if you throw your own party and it ends up being really popular and successful it's like wait how do we make that party part of our party like how do we combine forces I throw my own party and that and that's yeah i think (laughs) what we both have done with our careers to an extent now this old guard is wanting to capitalize on those moments and that idea of inclusivity and i think some of it is genuine i think some of it is just wanting to have a piece of the pie but i i think it's like yet to be seen like what the future of fashion is because inclusivity is kind of like a big clickbait word right now it's a big buzzword i've been doing these interviews for the last like couple months and it's like kind of getting strange i'm like i think it should just be normal i mean it's cool it's great i mean i'm glad that people are paying attention but i wish they're paying attention in a different way that like oh my god the like the girls on my runway just look so fabulous not really that oh my god look at these plus size girls that he mixed in i just like that it looks different i think it's way cooler and way more interesting it's so boring. Ugh, same old thing. And what's the same old thing? For year after year, season after season, yeah. they all cast the same girls who look the same. Yeah. I think, like, also to Christian's credit, in being inclusive, that wasn't a call out made by him or his team. It wasn't something that they, like, generated a press release from. Obviously, like, the way it's covered is, like, 
Christian Siriano had 10 plus size models in yeah. his show. But for Christian, it was just like, of course we did. Like, yeah. we've, we are making clothes in all sizes. Like, why wouldn't we have a diverse cast walking the show? Political and social activism is becoming increasingly popular and beneficial. So dressing the unconventional star, someone like, say, a Leslie Jones. Yeah. Why would someone not want to dress her? And this is hard for me to explain because hmm. I, I talked to, you know, like when there was a profile written about you in L, mm-hmm. Christian. And I remember tweeting the L article profile on you, Christian. And and I said I made a statement of, you know, when no one else wanted to dress me, you know, this man did. That's why I have so much love for Christian. And I think mm-hmm. what people often don't realize is that designers of a certain caliber are really exclusive, um, I remember even I even no, paid like thousand sure. dollars to to someone to a stylist to mm-hmm, get clothes mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. and she told me because of my size and I'm a size eight, because of my size, because of my lack of a profile, and I'm getting like emotional. Um, yeah, because of these things that no one no one she couldn't pull clothes that fit me, and like people don't understand that part of the process, like the rejection <laughs> of it, and like how it talks about your worth. And so that's why, like, I'm so grateful to you, Nicolette, for introducing me to Christian and to Christian for doing that. Because it's it's one of those things, no matter how powerful you feel or empowered you feel in yourself, those things have real effects on people. There's so much pressure, too, on everyone to look a certain way and be a certain thing. And, um, and I think that's, like, the biggest challenge, at least that I have when I work with other actresses or musicians, is that there's so much pressure on them to be something. I think I'm just trying to make them understand that it, it should still be fun a little bit. Like, getting dressed should still be fun and exciting, and it shouldn't be this hard, horrible process. And that it's like the war. It's like I can't imagine like my mom not being able to like find something to wear. I mean, think about like the women in your life. Like I can't imagine that. But I also I think it is very important for designers out there to broaden their thinking a little bit because it also is so much more beneficial because you get people that actually care about what you're doing like where being a designer is a craft is an art form and there's a lot of people that don't see it that way but then there's a lot of people that respect it Um, I've dressed so many people that sometimes there isn't even much of a thank you after I'm more interested in dressing people that appreciate it Nicolette I you know obviously getting all emotional around this and like I'm also a, a person with a body type that should not be difficult to dress right and so I can only imagine the layers of emotion and self-worth stuff that's built mm-hmm. into having a body that people have completely shut out. Yeah, I mean, I've struggled with that a lot and my body type has also changed a lot over the years and I think like, you know, there was a point where I had a a platform and I had a column in a magazine and I had a lot of people, you know, following me on social media and so brands wanted me to cover their brands and their shows and what they were doing to capitalize on my platform. But then I would show up in a space and be completely ignored or be invisible. No one would talk to me. I would show up at a fashion show where I was assigned a front row seat and a PR girl would tell me to my face, like, you're not supposed to be here. I'm like, well, here's the seat that you assigned me and I'm an editor at a magazine and and that was just a real experience that people would look at my body and say like you don't belong here there are very few 
people like Christian who actually made me feel like part of the process and part and feel included and like I did belong there. Fuck fashion in a lot of ways also because this idea that I could like work as hard as I have and, you know, have the educational background that I have and make a point to be really intentional and deliberate in the work that I do and then still have people tell me that I don't belong because I didn't meet their body standard or like their uh, the what they expect me to look like is just really disgusting. It's like a really, really gross reality. And then to see how people have treated me differently as my body has changed and gotten smaller and maybe like gotten closer to this idea of what I should look like as and and I'm still not there. Like I'm a size 14 and I'm not necessarily like normatively beautiful. But to see the shift in how people treat me and approach me is so horrifying because you just really see firsthand like how people's biases about body types and about presentation all come into play every single day. Christian, I consider you the Kelly Clarkson slash Carrie Underwood (laughs) of Project (laughs) Runway. You know, obviously you get the exposure. You're an instant brand without necessarily having product. Mm Mm-hmm. How were you able to build, and I know this is so basic, right? It's such a basic and complicated question, but how were you able to build a business? It's really hard. That's what it is. I mean, it's just a challenge. It's, yeah, you're thrown into a world where you have millions and millions of people that want something from you and you have no way of creating that. You have no, I mean, I I knew nothing. I mean, I think my first season, my first show, I just knew nothing, but I am the best bullshitter that Mm. you can ever meet. Uh, I just was always really, really good at pretending that I knew what I was doing after my first show. Yeah, I mean, my first appointment was with Saks, and they asked if I was capable of, like, producing a collection and shipping a collection. There's so much that goes into when clothes go to stores. It's, like, very boring, but there's so much that goes into it. Shipping a box alone you know, it can be quite a process just to a retailer. I studied fashion merchandising. That was my undergraduate. Mm -hmm. So like I wanted to be a buyer, but I also studied from the runway to getting it to a retailer, right? Which is Mm -hmm. like all of the boring stuff that no one talks about. Like they they can see a dress that you designed Right. As a young designer with not much of a back end. Yeah. There. No archives. Yeah. No, no, archi- no, no bit, no people, no teams, no nothing. You know, the biggest the biggest challenge was early on is that you have a collection, you can make beautiful clothes. But you also have to remember that, let's say it's your first season, your second season showing. If you go into a retailer like Saks, you know, I was hanging next to Oscar de la Renta, Dior, Monique Lulier, Carolina Herrera. They've been in business for 50 years. So how do you compete? How do you, or how are you on the same level? You're not. So you have to put this forward that you are. Uh, you have to be just as good. And that was the challenge. That was what I was good at, which is also why I was good on the show. I was really good on the show because I just like was good at making things without nothing to them. Like I just figured it out. Uh, it's not that I knew what I was going to do. I just um, figured it out. And that's really what it is. It's problem solving. The whole fashion business is problem solving. It's like logistical figuring it out, um, which is how pattern making is everything. It all is uh, is kind of just 
putting a puzzle together. And it's also that, you know, you call it bullshitting. I call it the hustle, right? It's it a, is a It's hustle. also the reason why you then connect with an unconventional but everywhere brand like Payless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which then puts your product in the thousands. Yeah, thousands. Around the country. What? And that Millions. isn't, you know, someone like Halston doing that with JCPenney back in the day would have been career suicide. But yeah, for you... Right. <laughs> it just was so different. I think it was different. You know, also... I started the business in 2008. My first day of market was the day Lehman Brothers crashed. It was the worst economic situation ever. Zach's canceled their appointment that day. They came a week later, but um, I'll never forget that day. So it was, the economy was different. So at that point, everybody was scrambling. And when I got the, you know, offer to do something like pay less and, you know, sell shoes in 4,000 stores, and it was kind of like the right time. This is what people need. It just was a smart move at the time for me financially. Also, I needed something to fund my business, and I didn't think about if people would judge it uh, as much. And I and and they definitely did, and I think they still do. But I don't care because we've sold like almost a billion pairs of shoes, so not worried. Um, so I'm like, eh, I'm okay. Um, but, but is there is there a balance <laughs> that you have to strike between? couture and mass fashion? Um, There is a huge balance, but I try to make them feel the same a little bit. And I think that's, uh, you know, there will, I always was a fantasy evening wear designer. People knew me from kind of over the top creations. So it wasn't hard for me to go down because I started very high. It would be different if I was known for like making shirt dresses, but I treat it the same way. I designed the the shoes that are at Payless the same way I designed the clothes. Obviously, the materials are different and and that process, but I try to make them the same aesthetic, the same feeling, the same voice. And I think that's why it's worked. I've been working with them for nine years. Like, they they're my, my longest collaboration. Uh, well, well, let's shift back to the fantasy. What <laughs> is it? Is there a different approach when you're dressing a political figure like Michelle Obama compared to dressing, say, a Gwyneth Paltrow? Well, one, I never think someone's going to wear something. I'm really... I, I I had that problem early on in my career that I was so emotionally that I would be so upset. It would affect me so much when people wouldn't wear my clothes. And I kind of got over that. And I and I now I'm so casual about it that it's it's kind of scary. Um and it's a little <laughs> scary for my team. We like make all these custom things and no one wears it. We don't even talk about it the next day. We literally don't even bring it. It's like, eh, okay. Cause it's kind of becomes normal, which is really scary. Uh, <laughs> but so dressing like someone like Michelle Obama, I kind of treated it the same way. It was amazing. It was so exciting. But you I, dressed her for the DNC. Yeah, I dressed her for the DNC. I dressed her a few weeks before that um, for the first time, actually. And But I just treated it as like, oh, this is like, we'll see if it happens. Mm-hmm. And even when she walked out, you know, at the convention, I kind of was like, I don't know if that's really my dress. Like I <laughs> thought it was, but I just don't. I know it was like really scary. My mom was like, "It's yours." I'm like, "How do you know? You weren't there. You don't even know what it is. I told you it was a blue dress." It was like so funny. Um, and we've made Michelle other things that she didn't wear, uh, and we've made other people, you know, so many things that they've never worn. And uh, it's the balance because otherwise you will drive yourself crazy. It's like when people ask me who do I want to dress, I don't always say because I don't like to put that out there that I have to dress somebody. Because then if it doesn't happen, it's quite depressing for myself. Is there anyone that you won't dress? I mean, not necessarily. I more now choose not to dress people that I think don't, like, maybe um, 
maybe don't stand for like something politically correct that I don't think is like important. Melania and Ivanka, would you dress? Them? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't, I really wouldn't. Um, you know, having them wear something would be saying, okay, I support what's happening. Mm-hmm in their environment and sadly like they're involved in the environment that they're in um, because of association that's all of us like so yeah you know I, I wouldn't be able to because I don't agree with 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 their kind of camp so yeah those are the people that I say no to it has nothing to do with size or what if you're in a stupid movie I don't care as long as I love you and I'm a fan of what you are doing mm-hmm. uh, which is why I pick people that I just like like mm-hmm. who's you know I dress Kathy Bates for the Emmys like that was random but Kathy Bates is the most amazing actress in the world who's not dressing her it's fabulous <laughs> and if you're not how boring are you so that's my thought <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of being problematic Christian I'm turning toward you now oh god are you ready no. <laughs> so my call? I just got uh, no chills. I'll say and I'll start with myself first N- the initial name of my book was fish food And I'm a girl who grew up with trans girls and drag queens in Honolulu, Hawaii, who use the term fish as a compliment. Queer is one of those terms that a lot of older, you know, LGBTQ people will be like, I take offense to that word. Or girl even is one Mm -hmm. within feminist, right? Mm -hmm. Even I remember when I started hashtag girls like us, so many trans women were like, I'm not a girl, I'm a woman. I'm like, okay, girl, then don't use girls like us, right? right? One of your catchphrases on Project Runway continues to bite me in the ass as a trans woman who fights for trans, you know, women's rights mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. hot tranny mess. Yeah. How have you been able to address and and move on from that particular point of controversy and catchphraseness? You know, there's so many elements to to it uh, because, well, one, it was, you know, 10 years ago, I was young and, and, and naive to the world, for, for sure. Uh, that was a, a big part of it. I mean, every, you know, 21-year-old kids make mistakes, for sure. Uh, but I think, to be honest, though, at the time, I didn't think of it as a mistake because I, I just everything, everything about my life was very different. I was openly gay at 13. I was very feminine. I was... I was flamboyant, I was exuberant, I was really over the top. That was my personality. That was how I coped with my world. And everyone I associated with was gay, drag queens, transsexual people, everybody was around. And and the terminology between those type of people is very different. It is playful. It mm-hmm. is a terms of endearment. They're not derogatory in any way. So anyone who is gay and has gay friends and has a good time out or, or or just having fun in general that was just terminology that people used in the year 2008 mm. uh, so uh, it would never have been a hurtful thing because it just was something that so many different people around me were, were, was using well, and I that think was it, the challenge it was that it like was not intended to be hurtful but that it it was of for course, many people of course you and, know and that and that you know and the challenges with that is um there's a a lot of things that people do take offense with now more than ever because uh, we having this voice in our world is much more important, much more prominent mm-hmm. because we need it uh, because there's too many other people out there that are just not supporting different groups. Mm-hmm. And that can, that's every group. Mm-hmm. That's women. That's everything. Uh, so I think now more than ever, uh, you know, it, it, it's super Im- important. Um, well, it's like kind of this idea, too, of like taking something that's an in-joke and like within the culture. Right. And um, 
introducing it to a very diverse mainstream audience who yeah. doesn't have the same fluency around drag issues. race has gotten to the same completely issue of, around completely. this where it's like intra-community wise right. like it's something that we use and we talk to each other right. about it's mm-hmm. a term of endearment right you I know mean, but the- even we take like yes queen like mm-hmm. i that's not my word to use and i feel very very sensitive about it but then it's on drag race There's and other people of all kinds yeah. are watching it which is the and- same for like frat boys and 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 all different types of like these little click cultures there's so many of us i mean i hope that everybody now um as like years as years go on for everyone like i hope that you know people uh would never ever think that it was ever a term of um a a derogatory or in, in any way it just it's like that's the hardest part i just hope that they think that i mean i can say I would not be friends with you and I don't think Janet would be friends with you if like I agree. we thought that that was part of you now. I'm trying to champion women. <laughs> I really am. Well, I'm glad to have you both as my friends. Thank you. Thank you so much for Thank joining us. Thank you for having us. us. This Thanks for very having amazing. us. Janet, I'm very proud of you. I'm Aww. so proud of you. <laughs> I love you both. Book two. <laughs> Book two. I know. So fabulous. In Siriano. In Siriano on the cover. Stunning. <laughs> Never Before is a product of Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. It was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Ricky Novetsky, Josh Gwynn, Liz Watson, and Barry Finkel. Our executive producer is Lena Dunham. Special thanks to Max Linsky and Ben Cooley. Our music is by Hans Del Sue. Thank you so much for listening. Outro. Should we do a new thing or? No. Okay. Just, just say I'm saying the outro now. 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 <laughs> <laughs>